Good afternoon. I want to welcome you to this public, public conversation that's been convened by the Center for the Study of Politics and Governance at the Humphrey School of Public Affairs. Um, this is part of an ongoing series that we've been doing on healthcare and other issues. Um, and um, my name is Larry Jacobs. I'm a faculty member at the University of Minnesota and at the Humphrey School of Public Affairs. Um, I want to welcome you to this conversation and also to participate in this conversation. You'll see at the bottom of your screen, there's a Q&A button. Please, please give us questions. We'll get to as many as we possibly can. Um, and uh, we'd welcome that. I'm very excited about today's program. It's on maybe the most important issue of our time, which is the coronavirus. And uh, we're gonna talk about the horror of the coronavirus. I'm sure that's gonna come up in terms of illness. Uh, and of course, there's the economic impacts. And we've been uh, talking about that uh, since March. Today, we're gonna take a slightly, well, a quite different take on it. We're gonna look at possibility that the coronavirus is actually producing innovation innovation in our healthcare system. And we've got a terrific panel, uh, and I'm very excited about this. Um, first, we have Craig Samet, who's the president and CEO of Blue Cross Blue Shield of Minnesota. Um, and with a lot of our guests today, they're, they're multi-talented in a lot of ways. Um, uh, Dr. Samet is also a physician and he got his medical degree at Columbia University in New York City, which happens to be where I got my PhD. So we've got that bond. Um, thank you very much, Dr. Samet, for being with us. We have two Minnesota legislators who are uh, big players in the healthcare area and are quite involved in healthcare. Uh, Senator Michelle Benson uh, is the um, deputy majority leader um, she is a Republican. She represents the north uh, part of the Twin Cities suburbs uh, in District 31. She's also chair of the Health and Human Services Committee. Also joining us is Senator Matt Klein. Uh, he represents the southeast Twin Cities of the metro area in District 5. Uh, he also serves on the minority side, that is, he's a Democrat. Um, in the, on the House, excuse me, on the Health and Human Services Committee. In addition, um, Senator Klein is a physician and he serves at the Hennepin County Medical Center, uh, which is a level one trauma center. Uh, it is also the safety net hospital here in the Twin Cities. It in many ways is the bedrock of healthcare in Minnesota. And I want to thank all three of you for joining us today. Thank you very much. Um, I'll start with the big issue here. If you kind of go back in history and you look at major crises uh, and challenges, whether it's a war or it's a pandemic, we have seen innovation. Uh, the last pandemic back in 1918 um, and, and other healthcare crises in other countries. We've seen tremendous investment in infrastructure. Uh, we've seen public health um, uh, breakthroughs. Uh, during war times, we've seen breakthroughs in terms of emergency room care and other sorts of medical treatments. Today, we're faced with uh, another set of challenges that the coronavirus has brought to us. And there's a conversation going on that that this experience or horror that we've been going through may produce changes in healthcare delivery and also in the system of reimbursement uh, for healthcare. Uh, Dr. Klein, I wanna start with you. You're in the front lines in treating coronavirus patients as well as being a public official in the Minnesota Senate. How do you kind of um, assess where we are in terms of potential innovation. Well, thank you, uh, Professor, and thank you for having me on. Um, you know, and I think the, the most 
The most sort of dramatic and telling one, which my colleagues will speak to, I think is telemedicine. And, and I'll leave it to them to describe some of the innovations in that area. But one of the first things I noticed in the hospital shortly after the pandemic hit was that our occupancy rates uh, for hospitalizations went way down dramatically and suddenly. And, and there were a lot of reasons for that, but one of the most significant was that uh, we providers realized that the safest place for our patients to be was not in an institution. It was you know, in the privacy of their own homes if possible, uh, sequestered as they could. Uh, and I think that sort of drive to keep people safe and keep them healthy outside of hospitals may turn out to be a significant sort of shift in our thinking. Uh, sort of aligned with that, Professor, uh, is reimbursement systems that would reward that type of thing. Reimbursement systems that don't incentivize hospitals to get people into beds, but rather incentivize us providers to keep people healthy and keep them out of hospitals. Uh, and, if, and if we're able to sort of, we've known for years that we have to do that, and we've made some baby steps in that regard, but, but this may be the seminal event in our, our lifetimes that sort of drives us to that uh, in a more progressive way. Thank you. Uh, Senator Benson, you made a comment in an event we did about a month ago uh, that said we really ought to be talking about not just the horror, but also opportunities for innovation that led to today's event. Uh, and I'm curious what your current thinking is about what we might learn or carry forward from where we are today. I think, first of all, documenting the new ideas that are coming forward. So we talk about telemedicine, but for example, the Department of Human Services has moved from wet signature to e-signature. They would have not done that um, had it not been for COVID forcing that to change. It might've taken years and a lot of study, but now what the finance industry is doing um, as far as signatures um, for compliance are being done electronically. Um, I look at what's gonna happen in the medical device and the pharmaceutical industry. Now that the FDA has found a way to move things really, really quickly, um, we're gonna have to you know, go back to something a little slower. Not everybody's going to work in panic mode all the time, but um, how do we move faster? What needs to be done versus what's gonna sit for a while? Um, I think our our thinking in government processes like that is going to fundamentally change. And there's a lot of government and healthcare. And so I think um, paying attention and bringing that over. Um, I talked to a man who uh, had worked on ventilators because of this, um, pushed forward and got through FDA approval, a ventilator that just requires a gas canister. So what does that do for healthcare, A, in remote areas um, and be a third world countries where electricity might not be reliable. Um, we look at ECMO that was on the battlefield now being completely incorporated into our hospital operating system. So we accelerated a lot of innovation. Um, so I think it's important to recognize it, document it, and not lose track of the learning, um, especially for regulators. Dr. Sabat, um, be curious, do you see a new normal maybe emerging or at least the outlines of it? Um, you know, I, I, I struggle with the terms uh, old normal and new normal. And I, I think the term I'd prefer to use is a better normal. Um, I, I echo the Senator's comments. Uh, you know, I've, I've long been a believer that healthcare has been ripe for a reinvention and ripe for innovation. Um, and I would venture to say that I would not have predicted that it would have been a hundred year pandemic uh, that would really um, force us to really stare honestly at the system that we've created, whether the mechanism of reimbursement, um, the, uh, the lack of coordination of care, uh, the very facility centric model that we've built, um, the fact that care isn't as convenient uh, or, or frankly patient-centric or service-centric as we'd like, or that care that isn't uh, affordable on the trajectory that it's on. So I, uh, I think there will be a better normal. Um, and, and I think that we should, we should focus on the better normal as uh, what patients want, what our communities need. Um, and it frankly goes beyond the model that we've used before. I think the model 
needs to evolve. Uh, and I, I very much predict that it will take a, a totally different form. Professor, you give us, I, yes, Senator uh, Klein. Sorry to interrupt. I just wanted to add two other things that I really think will emerge out of our changed behavior surrounding healthcare delivery during this time. One is uh, the rapid uh, and universal acceptance of careful PPEs and hygienics between patients, uh, which you know we've become adept at sort of fully gowning and gloving and maintaining sterile procedure between patients, probably something that we should be doing every year during flu season anyway. Uh, preventing illness in that fashion could really transform uh, the volume of illness that we see on a seasonal basis. Uh, and also uh, this is, I think, as you know, has brought into high relief the balance between physical and spiritual health. Uh, we've had to do some things in terms of isolating patients. We don't let guests into the hospital. We don't let guests into um, congregate care facilities. And we've realized that while that may decrease uh, mortality and morbidity, uh, it has its own very real impact on emotional and spiritual health. And sort of trying to find that balance is something that we're gonna, that's gonna be brought to the fore by this illness. Dr. Salmon. Um, and Professor, what I would also add to, to double down on uh, Senator Klein's comments um, is the addition of social health and health inequities. Uh, I think we, we tend to think of healthcare very unilaterally as just clinical health, but if we think about it as clinical health, um, emotional health, and social health, um, we, we need to focus on the intertwining of those three as equally important. And I and the COVID crisis, as well as the crisis of racial injustice, has very much exposed uh, an opportunity for us to get stronger in the health of the community by focusing on all three. I definitely want to come into the question about racial disparities. Before we do that, I want to make sure everyone's following along here on, on the big themes. Um, Dr. Uh, Klein, could you give us some very concrete examples about how telemedicine is being used? I, I saw a uh, study, I think it was by the AMA, that had asked uh, primary care physicians and specialists about their level of confidence in telemedicine last year. Uh, not so high. <laughs> there were a lot of doctors who weren't that confident in it. And obviously things are changing. We're seeing all sorts of billing information coming forward that, that shows, as you said, hospitals are empty, doctor's offices are empty, and we are much more reliant on telemedicine. What precisely is telemedicine? You bet. Well, and this is, again, something that we've known we should be doing for generations, and, and culture is almost impossible to change unless it's forced, and, and this is forcing the change. Um, physicians like me were trained to bring people into the office, make them take a half day off work, drive downtown, pay for parking, come upstairs, sit in your office for 15 minutes, and then leave and get a bill. Uh, and for a lot of reasons, it's pretty apparent why that's not the best way to deliver medicine. If you can do it while someone stays at work and reports their symptoms, tells you their temperature, uh, and then you know you, you treat appropriately. Uh, here in the hospital uh, where I work, uh, we're using it as uh, COVID follow-ups. You know, one of the manifestations of this illness is that people may seem to be getting better and then at around 14 days get worse. Uh, so we we arrange a televisit, you know, uh, at various periods after discharge to ensure people are still breathing well. We send them home with an oximeter where they can check their oxygen levels. Obviously much better care than somebody sort of returning in a crisis to the hospital 14 days later, better for them physically and, and health-wise, but also just better for sort of resource allocation in this entire situation. So you've mentioned several ways in which telemedicine could be used. Pre-screening, uh, do you have coronavirus? Do you need to come to the hospital? Let's, let's have a tele-appointment and look into that. Secondly, follow-up care. Someone was in the hospital, they've been released. How are they doing? Let's make sure that it's not coming back with a, a uh, surge. There's also been talk about using telemedicine in the hospital to monitor uh, using advanced um, technology, how patients are doing. You might have you know, nurses within 10 feet, but if you've got um, you know, monitoring of patients, you might be able to pick up uh, severe um, uh, uh, incidents that are just around the corner that might not be apparent. Is that also something that you've seen? Absolutely. Well, you know, we do telemetry. We do, you know, continuous cardiac monitoring, continuous oxygen monitoring. One of the things that we've developed during COVID is uh, iPad visits, right? So every time you enter a patient's room, 
it uh, expends a, a certain amount in personal protective equipment, a mask, a gown, a gloves, a laundry bill, and so forth. And it exposes that person entering the room to a certain level of risk. Uh, we've started sending an iPad into the room or leaving a sterilized iPad in the room and people who maybe don't clinically need to be at the bedside, somebody who's arranging billing information or follow-up demographics or so forth, dietary preferences, uh, they'll, they'll visit via an, via an iPad visit rather than a direct in-person visit. So. Senator Benson, you've talked for a number of years about the challenge of providing uh, medical care in Minnesota with our, what, 67 counties? Uh, people don't think of us. It, don't think of us as a particularly large state, but we are. And a lot of the healthcare is concentrated in the Twin Cities. Um, do you see benefits telemedicine in terms of reaching, you know, potentially underserved areas or rural areas that are not near a clinic or a hospital? Um, I see it, an opportunity for improved compliance in those areas. For example, um, diabetes follow-up. Um, really important to have those check-ins. I talked to a physical therapist and a physical therapy assistants doing some tele-check-ins, even if they can't physically monitor the exercise, have found much better compliance with PT follow-up. And so I think that increases accessibility for the folks in greater Minnesota, um, but also for people who might be home restricted in the metro area. Um, definitely improves the access to specialists for people who are distanced. Um, and I, I don't want to get into necessarily a network adequacy conversation, but we, we want to be cautious that we don't reduce the physical presence of some specialists because that physical presence is important um, as folks need. Um, there's nothing to replace direct contact as Senator Dr. Klein talked about the humanness, the spiritualness of medical treatment that you can do check-ins with a doctor, but there are times you need to see that professional face-to-face. -face. So I think as a supplement to physical presence to um, improve compliance, improve uh, follow-on care, um, it, not just for COVID, but if you have a surgery and they wanna check your range of motion, um, how much of that can you do via telemed and decide if you actually need that physical in-person uh, therapy appointment. I think those are all emerging and are gonna be really important. Um, one of the things that I think is going to come out of COVID with people working at home, and this isn't just related to healthcare, but as we come out of COVID, people have realized they don't need to be physically in the same place all the time to get their work done. And so I think we're gonna see people accessing the quality of life in greater Minnesota and having good health care there is going to be an important part of their decision. Senator Benson, I'm curious though, are you worried that the popularity of telemedicine and, and perhaps its longevity after uh, we get control over the coronavirus, that it may actually reduce clinics and hospitals in rural and, and underserved areas? We are seeing a significant drop in patients, in revenue, there is a crisis uh, that appears to be emerging in those settings. Oh, particularly for greater Minnesota hospitals, um, there were, I think, 27 that were underwater last year financially. And then the removal of elective procedures uh, threatens their very existence. And they're, we're gonna see consolidation of some of those rural hospitals, I have no doubt, but the people are still there who need care. So we're going to need a different model for providing care to those individuals. Um, and yes, there will be reduced physical clinic space, just as there's going to be reduced office space. Um, as we do more things from home and do more things virtually, just the physical presence will reduce. It is a concern, but again, the focus needs to be on the quality and availability. And if that can be accomplished with the lower cost and greater ease in mental health, in particular, chemical dependency, they're seeing really emerging success by having someone checking in instead of, oh, I couldn't get there because uh, my car had a flat tire or I couldn't get a ride. If they can do compliance via check-in with a medical professional, through a device uh, that actually improves the quality of their outcomes 
even if the building they need to go to isn't accessible at this point. So with every change, there is going to be disruption. The invention of the automobile put the buggy industry out of business and we keep going back to things like that. But um, we're going to, evolution is going to happen. Innovation is going to happen. And so not restraining it, but perhaps directing it is the best uh, public policy. Uh, Dr. Samet, uh, here we are in July. Um, there are certainly uh, folks who are uh, worried about the convergence of a second wave of the coronavirus, perhaps uh, at the same time that the flu season picks up. Push us ahead a little bit. What are the questions we should be asking today about how to move forward the innovations we're already seeing? What is it that uh, we should be preparing for in July that we may need in October, November, and December? Well, I think the first thing that we all need to think about is, is let's do what we can to really prevent uh, an additional surge or a further expansion of uh, patients who are COVID positive. And, and, and so I, I think a lot of it is more of the same. And I think in this, in this period when we're continuing to see um, the reduction in utilization in facilities, and, and frankly, what concerns us even more are those patients who are at home that don't have COVID that are not having the opportunity to come in and to have preventative care. And so I think we worry about underutilization. Um, we very much have been thinking about what we're calling a, a day after tomorrow, which is when the COVID uh, pandemic passes, when the economic crisis passes, when the uh, uh, racial injustice concerns um, uh, pass, um, or are improved, what does care look like? And, and for us, it's building out an infrastructure of a better care delivery future. Um, I, would, I would couple the Senator's comments uh, about the expansion of telehealth. We, we very much believe that telehealth is here to stay. Um, it may not be at the magnitude that it's at here in July. I suspect it will come back closer to baseline, but not completely. But I think the other prediction that we may see as we think about care delivery reinvented is we may see the return of, I guess what I would call the modern house call. Um, I, I thought I should share some stats, which I thought were pretty remarkable. In 2019, we had at Blue Cross 65,000 telehealth claims for the entire year. In the last three months alone, we've processed over a million telehealth claims. Uh, and so the math would suggest it's nearly a hundredfold increase. So if we think about care um, previously, uh, care historically may have been 99% face-to-face in clinics, hospitals, doctor's offices, and 1% virtual. But perhaps the future will be 50% face-to-face and 20% telehealth and 30% in-home care. Uh, I think it's those types of models that we very much want to and need to think about preparing for. Uh, Dr. Klein, what is it that you would recommend that we think about today um, so that you're in a better position come November, December, if there is a second wave of the coronavirus? Well, thank you for that question, Larry. You know, the, the hospitalizations uh, from the beginning have been the pinch point in, in how a society and how a state can care for this the best. And I appreciate that the governor's led out front on that um, by shutting down and during that time, sort of building up our hospital capacity. We have reserve capacity at our hospitals. Hospitals across uh, Minnesota are ready to amp up in, uh, uh, intensive care unit uh, staffing as needed. Um, what we've looked for at the legislature, and I've partnered with Senator Benson on, and we'll continue to work with her on, is some form of temporary medical liability. What we may find as this surges, uh, which it will, uh, is that we are going to ask people to practice out of their usual scope of practice. We're gonna ask nurses who would typically work in an allergy clinic to come into the hospital and help with ventilator management. We're gonna ask family practice docs who maybe don't practice that much in the hospital to come in and do ER work. 
uh, because it's simply going to be volume issues and, and our existing staff will, will become ill as well. Uh, so, you know, we have a precedent in Minnesota when we want to encourage caregivers to step into a situation where they might be a little unsteady. Uh, we have a good Samaritan law that says, listen, just go out there and do the very best you can. And we're going to give you immunity from medical liability temporarily for that circumstance because we want you to dive in. Uh, and I've been working with Senator Benson on trying to get something uh, like that surrounding COVID uh, so that our caregivers can feel confident stepping into a situation which is not entirely familiar to them. Senator Benson, I heard your name mentioned. Um, and there are a lot of um, challenges our healthcare system is going to face. There will, and I'm glad to hear it spoken out loud that there will be a surge this fall. I think there has been a level of um, deaths are low, hospitalizations are low, ICU usage is well within capacity, but the reality that this is um, an ever-present problem for the foreseeable future and that as we go into fall, we uh, re-enter um, our, our homes and, and schools if that becomes the case, but we are closer together. Um, viruses move very well in those environments and then influenza is going to come. And so um, the medical liability is about staffing, having enough people to care for a likely surge in the fall. Um, New York Presbyterian Hospital had uh, respiratory therapists normally, and the doctors will correct me, normally respiratory therapists see 10 vent patients in a shift. They were at 80 at one point. Um, because they couldn't get enough respiratory therapists in. So those are the kinds of things that our healthcare system has had the opportunity to look at and being able to bring in um, skilled uh, medical professionals from other practices in other states is, is what Senator Klein's working on. We've learned PPE and so I've started checking in with hospitals. Are you keeping a 30-day supply? And do you get worried when it gets down to 30 days? And what are the protocols for pulling back on PPE management if we start to see a surge and for example, if the Chinese start messing with our supply chain for some reason. So those are the things we need to look forward to in the fall. The things that we had to emergently deal with in March, PPE staffing, um, access to ventilators and beds. We just need to keep checking to make sure that we've got a plan and our, our hospital systems in the regions throughout the state have been really good at working together um, to do best practices, but the same problems we faced in March need to be evaluated for November and December and forward. This is going to be a big debate at the Capitol, and uh, because they'll be certain there'll be lawyers and patient groups who want to weigh in um, about this issue. Um, but it's always nice to see a Democrat and Republican talking together and on the same page and identifying similar issues. So. I applaud you for that and look forward to the debate. Um, I want to pick up on another issue. It's actually well-framed by a question. Um, how can we ensure telemedicine makes healthcare more affordable if uh, you're required to pay, that you being the insurer is required to pay providers the same for procedures done at home as done at a hospital or a clinic? This is known as uh, parity. Um, and there's a debate on this, of course. Uh, Dr. Uh, Samet, what's your view about that? Well, I mean, I, I, I think that one of the ways that we would want to think about an opportunity to reinvent care delivery, and this may very much tie to a discussion about the way that we reimburse for outcomes in population health versus volume. Uh, is we need to think through the lens of prevention and wellness and avoidance and the use of uh, virtual care and telehealth services for that predominant purpose. Um, I think if we think about, and, and uh, Senator Klein mentioned this, when we think about the way that patients have historically um, constructed a visit, uh, and when they arrive in the doctor's office, not only do they have that visit with the doctor, but they're more than likely to have an imaging study, um, a lab test, perhaps a prescription, um, some of which uh, are not necessarily needed. And when we look at the evidence about the things that we collectively do when people come in face to face, 
um, some of them are, are low value and they don't necessarily improve the quality outcome for that patient. Obviously with a telehealth visit, um, even if parity is the same for the physician component of that visit, uh, I think we would think a bit more carefully about whether all of those suppl supplemental charges or supplemental expenses would occur. The same would be true of urgent care. Uh, if there's an opportunity to bring care into the home or care into the community as opposed to in an emergency room or in an urgent care facility, um, there's a likelihood that the patient wants to stay home, that the care can be equally effective in the home, and that a resulting hospitalization wouldn't be needed. So, so I think in all of those ways, telehealth could very well be steeped in a much more prevention and wellness-oriented model that would reduce and sort of eliminate some of the unnecessary low-value downstream services. You've raised uh, a number of issues, um, but I just want to focus in on what I think are two dimensions for the conversation we've been having about uh, telemedicine. One dimension is care, and we've just been talking about pre-screening and follow-up and and the use of um, uh, tele or IT um, techniques in a hospital to monitor patients. The other issue is affordability and our spending. And um, obviously the healthcare industry is huge. It's, it's approaching $4 trillion a year. Uh, so these things are not trivial. Um, and I think Dr. Samet, what you're saying is we need to look at both of them um, and prevention is certainly part of that, uh, looking at ways to move away from simply paying for volume of discrete services, which is known as pay for service, and move towards a more value-based um, approach to reimbursement, where you would say pay for someone is getting a hip replacement for the hip replacement with a penalty if that patient has to go back into the hospital because of a complication that was um, that should have been prevented. Um, so looking at the affordability issue, do you think uh, telemedicine is a way to save money? I wouldn't necessarily put it as telemedicine is a way to save money. I think the way that we should think about optimizing care delivery is what is the right care delivery site? What is the right um, procedure? What is the right a modality that we should use to care for people that maximizes their outcomes and that is most affordable. You know, the, the challenge that we've got, even when we think about paying for a telehealth visit the same that we're paying for a face-to-face -face visit, maybe we're thinking about payment all wrong. Maybe in essence, what we should say is, let's pay to assure that a patient is getting exceptional care, high levels of service, and We'll, we'll pay a primary care physician a certain amount of money, you know, totally for all the care that they would want to provide to a patient. And then let the health plan get out of the way in terms of where's the right site and how should we pay. The, the caregiver, the provider then gets to decide, is this service best performed in the home, uh, in the cloud, uh, in my office, in the hospital? I think if we changed payment and we focus on uh, of, you know, rewarding better care at a lower cost, the entire care delivery model shifts. And I take it from what you've said that the parity law is not something that you think is a great idea. Well, I mean, I think the parity law is based upon the existing fee-for-service volume-based okay. reimbursement model. I think in a, in a world, if, if we believe that the world should pivot more to a population health reimbursement model, then the parity law is somewhat less material. It, it, it sort of becomes a bit irrelevant um, when the reimbursement model changes. Um, Dr. Klein, parity law relevant, do you agree? Only, only as a way to sort of shift our culture away from in-person visits to, to televisits. But uh, Professor, exactly as Dr. Samet said, your, your question about parity presumes that we're going to continue to reimburse uh, per encounter. Uh, and if that's the case and we do that, no matter what you reimburse a televisit for, an enterprising uh, provider will double their encounters to make more money and will continue to incentivize volume. 
Um, I agree that we need to shift conceptually away from those perverse incentives uh, towards global health. Uh, in the hospital setting where I work, I've advocated for global budgets. Uh, you give an institution like mine, Hennepin Healthcare, uh, X number of dollars, $10 million for this year to care for your population. And then you attach uh, quality incentives, population-based incentives. If the uh, vaccination rate in your community is above X percent next year, you'll get an additional amount. Uh, that would you know, steer us away from trying to fill beds and uh, uh, order more x-rays and more towards trying to make sure that the people in our community are healthy and, and satisfied. Dr. Benson, uh, Dr. Benson. <laughs> no. <laughs> Senator Benson. Senator. I think of you as a doctor of, of policy. No. Um, um, I would uh, have to go through your program and actually produce a uh, thesis. And, so, Sen uh, Sen Senator Benson, what are your thoughts about the parity law? Is this something that we needed to kind of jumpstart telemedicine and now should be pulling back on? Um, there was quite a fight. Julie Rosen actually carried this bill, and I remember the debate quite vociferous. You know, from the payer community, why should we pay when it doesn't cost the doctor as much? They don't have to have as much square footage, et cetera. Um, that's why I like to go to and almost completely the opposite of the two gentlemen on the call. I would love to see individuals subscribe, not governments say, this is how much we're going to pay your hospital system. But to see individuals um, say, this is how much you have for primary care per month, and we're going to pay doctors. So Dr. Jensen um, introduced something called direct primary care, which is allowed in Minnesota. Um, actually, Omaha has done a really good job of coupling this with access to a hospital. So you subscribe um, and you get what you need and you can leave that doctor if you don't like that doctor, but where they match up really well, and this is, this is where good ideas can come from all places. If a doctor says, you know what, I'm going to need to see you in the office as a follow-up for that surgery, or let me do a pre-screen at home and let's see if you need the follow-up. That increases quality for the patient. It reduces wasted time for the healthcare system. Um, but if we only pay for an in-office encounter, um, then we've defeated the purpose of trying to innovate, um, have minimal contact, have the patient and doctor be at the center of the conversation. And it becomes about checking a bunch of boxes. And so if we can think of it as a subscriber service and maybe for public programs, we set an amount, which we have done in many cases and they're, both of my colleagues are familiar with it. But what if an individual can use their money to subscribe to a clinic and a hospital and then have major medical for all of the things that are sort of at the top 5%. Um, Dr. Samet, does that sound workable to you? You're muted. Excuse me. Um, the model of direct primary care and, and really the notion of um, allowing a patient to really select the services that they want and really not have the incentives for the physician to generate volume-based um, uh, utilization has really been in existence for quite some time. And I. I very much am an advocate for sort of alternative primary care and stronger primary care models. Um, it, it, it's, it certainly focuses on what we're trying to achieve, which is more service-oriented, higher quality, and more affordable care models. So I, when we talk about um, care reinvented and we talk about payment reinvented, I think everything needs to be on the table as long as the incentives that we create reward outcomes, reward quality, reward efficiency, reward uh, following of the medical evidence, um, rewarding the things that really do translate into a healthier community. We should not be rewarding for the things that don't uh, generate better outcomes. We should be creating incentive models that reward better care at a lower cost for the people we serve. And I think everything should be on the table as we think about those models. And Larry, Senator Benson. I, brought up, I brought up before, we have like annual renewals for insurance um, every year. Nobody does that for their homeowners or auto insurance. And so what incentive is there for 
for a care system or an insurance company to say, you know what, we're going to work on your overall health. Um, there's not even in public programs, there's not a lot of incentive for saying we're going to work on your overall health. We're going to have a, a discussion about disparities. Um, if we look at dis disparities, high blood pressure, um, diabetes or in type 2 diabetes in particular, those seem to be um, more common in some of our minority communities, which is contributing to overall them being less successful in a healthcare system that was largely designed not to meet their needs. And so um, how, do we, how do we start moving towards an overall evaluation of health instead of, oh, your cholesterol is high, let's give you a drug. Because um, mm -hmm. right now we reward the doctor for the 15 minute office visit and then the script paid for and then pharma gets their piece. But nobody says, you know what, you have the ability to control some of this on your own and it's gonna have this much broader impact in the overall quality of your life. And that fits into the broad theme, at least, of value-based care, where prevention would be part of it, behavioral health would be part of it, as well as reimbursement of doctors and hospitals with a bundling of pay payments. Um, uh, Senator Klein, I want to ask you about a theme that um, your colleague uh, just raised, which is about racial disparities. One of the most striking and even shocking revelation has been the fact that people of color are dying and getting sick because of the coronavirus at much higher rates than our uh, whites. What are you seeing in terms of your practice um, and what concerns you about this, this pattern? Well, thank you for questions. And, and as with everything in society, the coronavirus seems to have brought this into high relief. As we know, morbidity and mortality levels for people of color are much higher than they are for white people in our, in our country uh, with coronavirus. Um, I'm, I'll, to put myself in context, I'm 52 years old. I went to medical school in the 90s. We did not learn anything about uh, racial disparities in outcomes, healthcare outcomes, although now that it has uh, seen the light, it's clear that that is a a severe healthcare emergency uh, and and a societal failure, uh, and it's caused me to sort of study myself, study my practice, and the way I and my colleagues and the people around us, as part of our support team, have treated patients for the last 30 years, and what systemic racism really means. Um, I, if you were to ask me if I'm a racist person, I would say I personally am not racist at all. Uh, have I participated in a system that is guilty of systemic racism? Yes, absolutely. And I'll give you a concrete example, Professor. I began examining, um, let's say we had two identical patients come into the emergency department. I was going to care for them. And one was a white woman from Golden Valley, uh, 45 years old with abdominal pain. Uh, and one was an African-American woman from North Minneapolis, 45 years old with abdominal pain. And I began to examine how much time would get spent with each of those patients, how much uh, symptom validation would they get? How quick would their pain uh, relief be treated uh, and aggressively? What studies would be ordered and how quickly? Uh, what would their discharge plan be? Uh, and it becomes apparent, I think for any provider, once you start asking those questions and looking at your own encounters, that people of color have a different experience in our healthcare system, uh, which I think in large part accounts for the differences in their outcomes. It's something that we really need to dig deep individually in terms of our own practices uh, to plumb the depths of how this has uh, been allowed to fester for so long. Dr. Samet, what can the uh, uh, insurance industry do to uh, address racial disparities? Well, I think that, you know, um, one of the challenges with the healthcare industry is we've sort of been forced to stay in our lanes. Um, that health, health insurance is uh, supposedly all about networks and claim payment. Um, when in all reality, I think that there's a role that health plans can play, especially given our desire to uh, improve outcomes for populations, that we should be in the racial inequity business, the social uh, disparities business. Um, even beyond what Senator Klein has said, even if those two patients came into the hospital and were treated identically, their outcomes may not have been identical because their underlying personal circumstances back at home or in their communities, whether it's um, 
housing instability or food insecurity or loneliness or in the inability to, to see a primary care physician easily uh, because of transportation barriers. That's the whole notion with equity. Equity is not treating everyone the same. Equity is hope is expecting that everyone will have identical outcomes, that everyone has the opportunity for equally high quality um, uh, healthcare uh, in our community. And so from our point of view, uh, why can we not get into the social determinants of health business or the health and equities business? Um, we very much believe that we should be in the food insecurity business. Uh, there are examples of systems in, the, in our state that are creating food pharmacies. And what they're finding is, is that when they assure that their community members are getting access to food, they see a significant reduction in emergency room utilization. Um, so if we believe in improving outcomes, why would we not be in the food distribution business in partnership with others throughout the state just to make sure that the communities that we serve are healthier? So I, I think the lines will get blurred and that we will play a role in helping to support social health, not just clinical health. Senator Klein, I wanna come back to you on this question because I listen to Dr. Samet and I think about the politics of legislature. Does this kind of feed into a fairly progressive agenda about um, getting into the food industry, getting into social determinants, which is basically the economic and social factors that drive healthcare. It's not always your doctor. It's, you know, do you have adequate housing? Are you uh, living in a community in which um, you feel intense economic stress, stress from violence? Is this basically a progressive agenda? Well, I suppose it's historically been called a progressive agenda, although to the extent that it uh, saves uh, government payers a lot of money, I think it's fairly conservative. Um, you know, again, if we had reimbursement systems that rewarded outcomes uh, like uh, decreased racial disparities in childbirth uh, or improved vaccination rates in a community uh, and decreased hospitalizations, uh, that ends up saving uh, public and private payers quite a bit of, of money. Uh, and it's simply a matter of sort of shifting direction from filling hospital beds to having caregivers in that setting when they're with a patient figuring out how best to take care of the community that they serve. Uh, so yeah, the, addressing things as healthcare, calling things healthcare, which uh, traditionally have not been called healthcare, like food insecurity, housing instability, uh, addiction, uh, poverty, um, I guess gets labeled as a progressive agenda, but I think it has some conservative appeal. Yeah, per, uh, Professor, one of the things that I would add, you know, we often use the adage that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. The reality is that's not how our healthcare industry has historically worked. We're in the sickness business. Um, if we were truly to invest in the ounce, uh, I would argue that um, racial inequities, social disparities, uh, social determinants of health are in that ounce, along with many other things that we could do that would prevent, protect, avoid illness so that we don't have all of the downstream negative effects, uh, sickness and mortality that come with lack of prevention. Senator Benson, um... I can kind of anticipate uh, some of your comments. So let me move to the positive question. Do you think there is um, space for a positive bipartisan agenda that would take the, the lead of Senator Klein about looking at moving more to a value-based reimbursement system so that the spending that was going on was focused on these broader determinants of health? I think it's really interesting to hear an executive from an insurance company talking about global um, budgets. As I look at it, what we've got now, um, county caseworkers who see food and housing, and, and they've got all these silos and piles. Um, and then in a separate lane, we have insurance companies under PMAP. Uh, they're actually going out for procurement now and social determinants of health are probably part of that contract. So we've siloed our system. Um, I went down to Powderhorn Park and the day that I visited, there were actually um, 47 or 50, I can't remember which day I looked at, open slots for women and children housing. 
And so why were they disconnected? Um, why, why are we pushing all these resources into spaces and bureaucracies are in the way? Um, child protection system um, impacts minority communities much harder than it impacts uh, our majority white community. Um, the destruction of families, chemical dependency is treated differently depending on, um, you know, geographically actually where you're located has a pretty big impact on your access to chemical dependency. So the siloing of our system is problematic. Um, so I'd look, like to look at how we reduce silos. Um, we're going into a pretty tough budget year. So um, tough sledding if you say we want to increase payments overall, but how do we reduce silos? Put the individual at the center and say, here are the resources that we have available. And, and for this audience, this might be a stretch. In the disability community, and, and Senator Klein has sat in on many of these hearings, for the disability community, our first decision used to be, how are they safe? And they were institutionalized. And now it has taken a long time, but we're moving to how do they get to live the life that they choose? And then we make sure that there is support and safety available. And so maybe some of the paradigm of if someone has multiple complex health issues, maybe it's not about all the individual silos that serve them, but how do they make choices that have good outcomes over a number of years instead of the immediate 60 day, 90 day turnaround. And so that kind of innovation, I think is always gonna be welcome. Um, I think it's a little tough to find money for everything, but if we can break down silos, resources um, can be more flexible. We have, uh, time is running down. So I wanna raise a couple issues. Um, uh, Dr. Uh, Samet, question from uh, one of the folks who's listening in. Should Minnesota medical licensing requirements be adjusted to allow providers to virtually see patients across state lines? Um, the, the challenge with credentialing and licensing is to assure that there is a mechanism to uh, guarantee um, uh, qualifications, um, uh, capabilities, and high quality outcomes. And so I think that has often been reserved to either specific uh, institutions like health plans or hospitals where delegation exists or with state boundaries. Um, I think if we were to think about extending licensing and credentialing more broadly, we would all likely want some assurances that the care that I'm receiving virtually is not uh, by a provider that hasn't been held to the same level of scrutiny that my state would be held to. So. So I, I, I think it's, um, I don't mean to hedge your question, but I think that as long as a mechanism could be created that there's universality, uh, you know, the highest possible bar to assure that credentialing is done accurately and correctly to correct, to check for quality, then we could potentially see extension of those rules beyond state lines. But I'd, I'd very much be interested in my colleague's point of view on that. Yeah, well, this, this is one of the most political issues out there. And I want to give you a, an A plus for, for very agilely handling it. Um, it's one of the ideas that Republican lawmakers in Washington around the country have, have talked about as a way to lower costs. And we're not going to go into it because I want to ask a different question uh, to Senator Klein. Um, we're seeing, and, and this conversation is a good example, of the focus on biological, physiological health. We've talked a bit about prevention, but we have not talked about the infrastructure for public health. And I think the assumption of this conversation is the next step, the yesterday that Dr. Samet has referred to, is gonna be looking at you know, the biological, physiological side of healthcare. Are you concerned that we are not now talking about and planning for the tomorrow public health system? Well, that's a really good point. Public health was kind of um, the redheaded stepchild of, of healthcare for all along, right? And all of a sudden, 
it's got the spotlight on it and, and we're figuring out what happens when you wash your hands and when you socially distance and wear masks and virtually everybody is a public health expert now if you go on the internet. Uh, so it's got a lot of attention that it never had before. Uh, no, I don't, I'm not concerned. I think similar to your opening question to this uh, forum is uh, this is one of the things that maybe we should have been doing 10 years ago, talking about public health, talking about prevention. Uh, and now it's got a big spotlight on it. So here's our moment um, to sort of uh, fortify it uh, and become educated about it and, and realize why it's a, a more important thing than just going into the emergency department when you have a finger cut. Senator Benson, could you envision uh, the next session of legislature, meaning starting in 2021, major legislation in Minnesota to improve our public health system that would encompass testing, uh, contact tracing, you know, just really uh, prepare us for the next, you know, uh, pandemic that might come through? Well, most people aren't aware we've always done testing, tracing, and tracking. Um, we did it for syphilis, we've done it for TB, we've done it for measles. Those were, there are big three. It's really uncomfortable to be in a conversation with the governor talking about a syphilis outbreak, but we do this. Um, what happened, uh, global pandemics come once every 100 years and we couldn't flex up fast enough. Um, our systems were antiquated. And so, yes, there needs to be some improvements. But one of the warnings that we need to take in government is not to overreact. And so let's, let's look at what we're going to realistically need over the next five years. Um, influenza comes every year. We try to do testing, tracking, and tracing for influenza. Um, what, is, what is a stable but flex-up structure look like? Um, we talked about the pandemic 1918, um, the pandemic now. We have had SARS, we had H1N1, and, so, and we did Ebola response. I mean, do folks remember what we did for Ebola? It was amazing. Um, it was one of my first introductions to the importance of public health. How do we build a system that's stronger than it was before COVID without being oversized, but can flex up? Um, what's a five-year need look like? And do continual evaluations and improvements. We're going to get some best practices out of this. Pay attention to those. Put away the things that didn't work, um, but being cautious about a level of overreaction. Um, we're gonna, we don't have resources to build a pandemic level response that is a permanent infrastructure. Thank you, uh, Dr. Salmon. I've got a very unfair question. Um, we've kind of run out of time, but I can't leave it without raising it. Okay. Um, we've seen the uh, Federal Drug Administration uh, expedite its review and approval of treatments and vaccines uh, because of the coronavirus crisis. Does that strike you as an area for careful examination in terms of the, yester the yesterday that you were referring to? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that it's, it's yet another complicated question. I wouldn't say it's necessarily unfair uh, because on the one hand, we certainly want to expedite the availability of treatments that work. Um, on the other hand, um, are we giving it ample time to understand whether those drugs do work and whether they're safe? And so what we may very well need to see, and I think that this was in development pre-COVID, was is there a way to think about uh, testing and trials of drugs a little bit differently? Um, through the lens of kind of real world experience or real world evidence that essentially says, can we bring, um, can we bring things to market sooner, but then continue the comparative testing afterwards with populations to understand after they come to market, whether they are as effective as they were presumed to be. And so the question is, is there a model that is a bit more of a balance of speed and efficacy We've been overly cautious in approvals. Um, I think that that is for good reason, but it has slowed down the development and the introduction to market of new drugs. That being said, we then need to find an alternative way to make sure that they work and that they're safe for people who take them. 
it's a very uh, well-crafted uh, answer. And just to fill out a little bit on the timeline, I think the average now is well above seven years in terms of the initial filing to when there's a decision. So um, it's not either or, as you've said, we've had periods where um, drugs have been approved quickly, uh, and then there have been horrific consequences that uh, dominate uh, you know, congressional hearings and lead to um, some really just horrific uh, uh, health, health complications, birth defects, deaths, heart attacks. It's a, it's a misery. And so maybe, I, I, maybe the thing is, is that, you know, we need to understand safety first and maybe efficacy second. And I know that that seems odd for a helpline executive to say, but the most important thing is safety first. But then if something is safe, but it isn't effective, and most certainly if it's very high cost, then we need to keep reevaluating those drugs and then take them off the market or move them to other alternatives. If frankly, they're not delivering the results that were predicted or expected. And just for folks who are wondering, uh, this terminology of efficacy and safety. That is the framework that the FDA works within. And um, there's been debate about this for just about six decades, of fairly intense nature. Um, but I think the way you've put it about re-examining, um, we are out of time and I wanna respect your time. So I wanna just do a couple last things. First, for folks who've enjoyed this program, I wanna give you a heads up what we've got coming up. Um, the Center for the Study of Politics and Governance is one of the leading um, uh, uh, training areas for election administration. If you're interested in either entering the area of election administration and working for our democracy, um, you might be interested in this. We've got a information session coming up on Monday. It'll be at noon central time. Uh, you'll have alumni, there'll be information about this remarkable program is now churning out uh, nonpartisan professional election officials uh, coming up uh, next Wednesday, it's one of my favorite program. It's on American conservatism. Um, and our focus is from Ronald Reagan uh, to Donald Trump. We've got some terrific uh, panelists, including Peter Weiner, who is a Reagan administration official and a rock solid conservative. Um, <clears throat> so that'll be a terrific program. And then we've got a program coming up in mid-August, August 13th, on election security. We're going to get into issues about the threats that we are now seeing from Russia, Iran, China, how they're being handled. Unlike 2016, we have seen a massive ramp up of efforts on security with a terrific partnership between Washington and the U.S. Department of, of Homeland Security, uh, as well as the states and the counties. It's a great story that's coming up August 13th. I want to thank you for joining us. I also want to thank Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Minnesota sponsored today's programs. And I think it's seven years of programs that we've been doing in partnership. I wanna thank my good friend and partner, Scott Kiefer, who's been integral to all of this and a good personal friend of mine now. If you're interested in this program, you can catch the recording, which we'll be distributing uh, by tomorrow. And I wanna thank Mike Kari, who handled all the um, the IT stuff, he's really the producer of this program, thank you. And Kate Semino, who is the assistant director of the center and the master of all. Thank you very much for joining us. I wanna thank our guests who are terrific. I promised a great panel and I, I think you all over-delivered. So thank you, Senator Benson, Senator Klein, Dr. Samet, illuminating. And I think we can go on for two more hours. So have a good day, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.